Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into the wrong station. It was so humid that the dry trees swam on the other side of the glass. The station had an air conditioner jammed through one of its windows, but the machine lay silent. Somebody had drawn hearts in the brown dust that covered it, but that person was long gone, and the station was empty. I was the only one who had gotten off the bus. The ticket booth was closed for the weekend. The payphone was out of order. The heat had drained my phone battery. It was blinking on 4%. Because of my condition, I don't do well in the heat. A thin green ache was wriggling through my guts, and in the scratched windowpane, the dark circles under my reflection's eyes were turning bruise-colored. Her skin looked pale and translucent in the glass, like the skin of a dumpling. I looked away. I hate my reflection. Beyond those pathetic, dark-circled eyes, two dead trees separated the station from an endless, shimmering steppe of vacant parking lots. Bits of silica winked from the tarmac in the 40-degree heat. I wanted to go home. We have to get you out of the city, James had said to me. We had been dating for several months, but he lived north of Aurora, coming down Highway 404 three days a week for work in his shiny, air-conditioned SUV. He hated the city. He said it was noisy and crowded and impossible to drive. I like it here, I'd murmured. He didn't see it like I saw it. He only saw the traffic coming in and out, but I lived in a neighborhood of red brick duplexes and courtyard apartments. 
They all had front gardens filled with lush green shrubs whose names I didn't know, but when you walked past them in the morning, it was cool and it smelled nice. And it felt cozy and safe, and I knew all the old ladies, and I could pop down to the fruit market for groceries, and my doctor was only twenty minutes away by subway. Maybe just give it a chance, I'd said. But he'd laughed and shook his head. No, he said. It's so much better out in the suburbs. Don't you want your own house? A car? A white picket fence? I didn't. But I said, I guess so. All I really wanted was James. Because James wanted me. Maybe you don't understand, but when I was diagnosed, I thought my life was over. Even before I got sick, I would spend hours staring in the mirror every week, hating my thighs and chest and face and hearing my mom's voice in my head. You should exercise more. You should do something with your hair. If you got different glasses, maybe your cheeks wouldn't look so chubby, your nose wouldn't look so flat, your ears wouldn't look so big, and on and on and on. I didn't date much. When I was diagnosed, I hadn't been out with someone in three years. And then, when the doctor told us about my condition, I saw the resignation come over my mother's face. That's it, she was thinking. Nobody will ever want you now. And I thought the same thing. But then, like magic, James showed up in my life, in his crisp white shirt and his soft blue suit jacket and his nice brown hair parted to the side. And he was so nice and charming and confident, and he had a job and a car, and when I told my mom about him, she said she didn't believe me, but I could see from her face that she was sick with envy. Dad had never been anything like James. And a few months later, I was standing in the Lilyfield bus stop with my travel bag, waiting for him to pick me up. And waiting. Outside, the cicadas groaned up and down in weary arpeggios so loud that I thought they'd crack the glass. My head was pounding. I'd forgotten to get my prescription refilled back in the city, but James had told me there was a pharmacy in Lilyfield where I could go. Without my medication, though, the heat was thinning me out pulling the strength out of me in cold patches of sweat. The woman sitting next to me on the bus had noticed and, reaching into her blue blazer, had produced some crisp white pills. Tylenol, she'd said. But after I'd swallowed one of the pills, she winked at me and said, The good stuff. Now I could feel the codeine kicking in, but all it did was flatten out the pain into something long and dull, making the rest of me feel all woozy. I typed out a text to James saying that I was at the station but my phone was about to die. The screen went black just as I hit send. But how will I get places? I had asked him. He'd laughed. He had a laugh like warm waves on the shore. I'll drive you, he said. But what if you're out or I can't get a hold of you, I'd said. What if I need my medication? What then? He'd wrapped his arms around me. He always smelled of nice aftershave. Don't you trust that I'll take care of you? He'd said. And I'd still had concerns, but his arms were so warm and strong and his chest was so firm as I lay my head against it that I let the topic go and let him lead me around the kitchen in a slow dance. The station clock was stopped. I had no idea how long I'd been there, but it felt like a long time. Where was he? I took a drink from the tap in the women's washroom, but the water tasted like old pipes. Something must have happened. 
I rushed back to the window, worried I'd missed him, but the lot was still empty. Maybe the car had broken down? Maybe he was desperately trying to call me, but he couldn't get through because my phone was dead. Stupid. It was all my fault. I was ruining this. He'd smile and say it was okay, but we'd drift apart after this, and I'd lose the only good thing, no, the only thing in my life. I opened the door. A wave of heat washed over me. I felt lightheaded, and the ache was throbbing in my stomach and forehead. I still had one of those pills from the lady on the bus, and I took it to fortify myself. I looked at Google Maps before my phone had died. From here, it was only an hour and a bit walk along the highway into Lilyfield, where a little white house with a white picket fence stood at 27 Poppy Street. I stepped onto the tarmac and started to walk. The sun was right overhead. It was so hot, I thought the plastic wheels of my travel bag would melt into the pavement. As I turned from the parking lot down the side of the highway, the fresh dose of codeine washed over me like white surf on a sunlit beach. The headache was not so much gone, but carried by the wave into a corner of my mind where I forgot about it. The pills made everything even brighter and hazier. I felt like I was floating on the thick, humid air, floating down the road like a raft down a warm stream. A pickup pulled up beside me, a shiny new one, the color of James's blue suit jacket. The window rolled down and a woman leaned across from the driver's seat. I had an impression of a trim figure in a crisp white shirt, but in the shadow inside I couldn't really make out her face. Hey, she said, can I give you a lift? No, that's okay. I was feeling lightheaded. The ground was swaying up and down at me. You sure? She said. The door popped open and swung towards me. A tongue of cool air wrapped around my knees. It's pretty hot out. Everything was very bright. Okay, I said, and I climbed into the car. We began to roll down the blacktop as I buckled up. My clothes were stuck to my skin with sweat, and the air conditioning made me shiver. The woman didn't touch the temperature, and I didn't want to ask. My name's Jamie, she said. I introduced myself. Jamie, I said. My boyfriend's name is James. James Harris? Do you know him? White teeth reflected the brightness outside in the shadowy cab. Sure do, she said. She asked me where I was from, and I murmured that I was from the city, and when she asked me where my family was from, my mind was drifting, and I mumbled something about Macau originally a long time ago. It was a question I normally dodged, but I felt so sweet and heavy like I was sinking down into sleep. The islands of Cathay in the furthest east, she was saying, farther than Samarkand. What? I said. I sat up, blinking. The woman glanced at me. What? She said. What did you just say? I said. I thought you said something strange. The woman laughed. She had a laugh like a warm stream running down rocks. I think you dozed off a bit there, she said. Poor thing. It looks like you've had quite the day. Do you have a headache? Do you need something? I've got Tylenol. She gestured. In the cup holder between the seats, there was an unlabeled prescription bottle filled with pills as white as her smile. No, thanks. 
I said. You sure? Just to take the edge off. It's the good stuff. I shivered in the AC and shook my head. Oh, poor thing, said Jamie. She turned up the AC. You came in from the city? I nodded, rubbing my eyes. Out the window, we were driving past some bluish soy fields with a crisp white dairy factory in the background. I don't know how you can stand it there, she said, flashing her smile. All those people, it's so much nicer out here. You can drive around wherever you like and you don't get any of the problems or homelessness and all the houses are so... Her voice was deep and soothing, and it buzzed in my ears as I drifted in and out of consciousness. To curl and dream beneath the liquid light, and drink the milkweed sap that flows so slow and white, and ever on that island dream by day and night, and taste the lotus fruit that brings such sweet and slow delight. It sounds nice, I murmured. Those white teeth flashed in the shadow. You seem tired, she'd said. Are you sure you don't want to take something? You should take something. I wafted out of consciousness again, and her warm and droning voice filled the car and my ears with talk of islands in the gentle sea and spreading foam on golden sands and going there together, you and me. My eyes snapped open. Stop the car, I said. I flung the door open as she slammed the brakes, and I was out of the cabin before it had fully stopped. Doubled over by the side of the road, I threw up and wiped my mouth, swaying side to side. I'm sorry, I said as she appeared beside me. I threw up again, and her warm hand gently rubbed my back between my shoulders as she spoke soothingly to me, saying words that slipped through my mind as fast as my ears could catch them. I wiped my mouth again. Thank you, I said. I'm sorry. I looked up at her, but she was silhouetted against the white, white sun, and I couldn't make out her face. Of course, she said, guiding me back into the car with warm, gentle hands. Nothing to be ashamed of. You're just worn out by all that city life. But you're here now, out here to stay, and it's all going to be... I was already drifting again, and Jamie's voice echoed deep in my mind, telling me to relax, relax, and drift in the currents of myrrh and of styrax, drift in recumbent smoke, and drink in the sound of the sandalwood oar stroke, as we float along the spreading creamy beach of the incense isles that you have almost reached. I still felt as though I was moving forward on some invisible raft, but I found that the car had stopped and that the pill bottle had spilled in my lap, and Jamie was trying to slip one of the pills past my lips. I lurched sideways out of the car, stumbling and scraping my palms on the searing pavement. I had a glimpse of white teeth and caught a soothing snatch of verse as I staggered through the cloud of cool air and down the ditch beside the road. I fell through the dry, catching branches of the narrow wood across the ditch. It was still so hot. I tried to clear my head, but everything was still so bright, and the sound in my ears was still so hazy, and my head was still filled with strange words. 
Bright ribbons of blood flowed down my forearms and cheek like streams that fall so slow, like downward smoke to pools below, where blooms of poppy bend and weep, and stranded sailors lap the poppy sap that seeps. I shook my head, staggered up the draw, and found myself on a different road. I fell against the hot metal of a signpost and looked up. Poppy Street, it said. I started to cry with relief. It was still so hot. The houses closest to me were numbers 495 and 493. I began to tremble my way down the street. I realized I didn't have my overnight bag anymore. It must still be in that woman's car. I listened for the engine of an SUV, wondering if she might be following, but heard nothing. What had been her name? Jamie. It was such a nice name. I felt so foolish that I had made such a bad first impression in Lilyfield. Surely she must have been trying to help me. It was just that I was so woozy and tired. I had taken it all the wrong way, but James would help. James would sort it all out. He would make it okay with his easy way of talking to people and his white, flashing smile. Poppy Street was so lovely, with all the crisp white houses flashing like a smile, and all the nice white picket fences like rolls of clean white pills. But all the doors and windows seemed open and empty, and though there were a lot of nice blue cars in the driveway, all of their windows had been grimed up or broken long ago, and their bare axles sat rusting right on the pavement. I came to an intersection and looked up and down both streets in both directions. Poppy Street and Lotus Avenue swept into the distance, glinting with silica, matched on either side by empty white houses and rusted blue SUVs. It was very quiet. In the far distance, I thought I could hear the highway, its soft rush sounding like a far-off beach. Closer to hand, Lilyfield was silent neat and perfect. I crossed the street, looking both ways and giggling at myself for thinking that a car might come. Of course it wouldn't. Everybody in the driver's seats of all these SUVs had nodded off to sleep and had been in such a deep slumber for such a long time that their skin had gone all brown and stretched tight over their skeletons. On the other side of the crossing, there was a white building with a blue sign that said Pharmacy. Its empty front door hung open at me, dark and cool like the cab of an air-conditioned pickup. I frowned, trying to remember why I had wanted a pharmacy when everything was so perfect, but it looked cool and inviting, so I went inside. Another brown, withered-up man sat dreaming behind the counter, with his two hands pressed together into a pillow for his cheek. He looked so warm and peaceful that I smiled, wanting to drift away with him. I looked around at the shelves. What had I needed again? I couldn't remember the name, but it didn't matter. All the shelves held the same thing. Hundreds of identical, unlabeled prescription bottles, all filled with white, crisp pills. It's the good stuff, read one advertisement, sticking out from the shelves. Special offer, read the price tags. Free. That's nice, I said. 
I took one of the bottles and waved at the sleeping cashier as I stepped back outside. I continued to drift down the street, unscrewing the cap, but something was bothering me. There were words in my head, not the nice words like amaranth and asphodel and lotus bloom and philomel, but short, ugly ones like run, danger, stop, don't, get out, bus, and escape. I tried to find where they were coming from, but they were all coming from this corner of my mind where the nice warm waves of codeine had washed them, along with all the bad feelings like tiredness and headache, and all the bad memories like mom and the doctor and my condition, and the city, that terrible place where you could never drive anywhere, and there were all these problems and there wasn't any peace and quiet. I frowned and the bad thoughts got louder and louder and would have taken me over if I hadn't noticed the numbers on the houses and how close they were to the number 27. I was almost there, and I knew when I walked up the front path it would be paved with nice white rectangular stones like the placket of a crisp white shirt. And when I opened the front door, James would be there waiting for me, along with a cool breath of air conditioning and a glass of ice-cold water, and a plane ticket for some faraway destination over the ocean to the east, where we could lie on the beach and forget about it all, about the city and my mom and my condition, and anything but the nectar sweet that rolls from sea-blown blossoms down to bathe our crowns in slumber's feet, as we drift beside the honeyed tide that washes through our rafts of dewy fruit and sheaves of manna's silvered wheat. Number 27. I stopped. It was still so hot. I felt so far away in my head already on the shores. The broken gate of a white picket fence hung open. The path was bricked with white, but some of the slabs had been pried or cracked by time and tough grass. A blue SUV sat abandoned in the cool, cavernous door of the garage. The front door of the house hung open, dark and cool. James? I called. James? But nobody was there. Nobody in the whole neighborhood. Nobody in the whole town. Every house was empty, calm and cool. I could see what James had meant. It was so much quieter here than in the loud and crowded city. I stepped inside. It felt so cool. It felt so nice. It was quiet and dim. The house creaked as a breeze blew through it. A thin layer of white sand glinted between the floorboards like silica in the tarmac. Nobody had lived here for many, many years. I brushed my fingers along the walls, and it felt so familiar, so right. A house in the suburbs, a house all my own. In the living room, a water-damaged old sofa lay in the middle of the floor, and one of the weathered brown sleepers sat in it, with his arms spread out over the sofa back. Although the brown oils of his skin had stained his clothes like grease through a paper bag, I could tell his shirt had once been crisp and white, and his jacket had been a soft sea blue. 
Around the wall hung dusty frames with cracked and grimy glass. Photos of the couple who had lived there, a handsome man with nice brown hair and a side part, a dark-haired young woman with no circles under her eyes, smiling as though she had never had a green ache in her stomach, or a migraine, or a mother who had told her she'd never be good enough. They looked so happy in all of these photos as they sat together on the white sand of a distant beach. Smiling, I sat down on the couch next to the sleeping man. I pulled his dry arm around my shoulders and snuggled close. I felt so warm and content. A lovely house in the suburbs with a big car and a nice man, just like my mother had always wanted me to have. I began to drift away to sleep, already dreaming of the time when James and I would wake up and take another one of our vacations to some distant tropical beach, somewhere far over the horizon, farther than Samarkand, where creamy surf with sugar crystal sand doth blend, and lily white and poppy bloom descend, from drooping weary stems within the stream to downward wend, and ever in the drifting heat begin and end, wherever in a dream canst lifetime spend, all those who call the water lotus friend. The Wrong Station is made possible by the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Consider visiting today at patreon.com slash thewrongstation. This week's episode, Farther Than Semarkand, was written by Alexander Saxton and performed by Liz Durr. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Ilan Citrin and arranged for the viola and performed by Ilana Schmid. You can subscribe to The Wrong Station on iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify, and any other of your favorite podcast services. You can follow The Wrong Station on Facebook, Twitter, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. You can also follow The Wrong Station creative team on Twitter at AEW Saxton, AJV Batello, and Jacob BRDS. Tune in next Sunday for our latest episode, A Long Slice of Ham. Until next time, thank you for listening.